The moment is here. Boris Johnson will face a vote of no confidence. Well, in fact, he is, he is facing it right now. And we should get the results in at about 9 p.m. That means we're going to do an extended show this evening. We're going to be here throughout with live reaction to the results and to talk you through the twists and turns of the day. I'm joined by Ash Sarkar. Ash. If you've got the gathered crowd for the Queen's birthday party booing and whistling and hissing, not a very good sign for a Conservative Prime Minister. It's not a very good sign for a Conservative Prime Minister. And maybe it will be the end of him. Imagine the, the, the Platinum Jubilee bringing down Boris Johnson. Tonight will be a special extended edition of the show. In the second hour, we'll be joined also by Aaron Bastani. There is still just less than an hour left for Tory MPs to vote in Boris Johnson's confidence vote. But while we wait for that process to finish, we'll take you through the key events of the day. It all started with this statement from the chair of the 1922 committee, Graham Brady. I'm not making a statement. I've, um, I've, I've sent out a written statement. I'm really here to answer any questions you have on the process uh, or procedure. Uh, I'll say what was in the written statement, if it's helpful to you, which is simply to say uh, that the threshold of 15% of the parliamentary party seeking a vote of confidence in the prime minister has been passed. Therefore, a vote of confidence will take place uh, within the rules of the 1922 committee. That vote will take place this evening in the House of Commons between 6 and 8 o'clock. And we will announce the result shortly thereafter. To prompt that vote of no confidence, Brady had to receive letters from 15% of Tory MPs. That's 54 in total. Precisely when that threshold was met remains unclear. There's been some speculation Brady had already received that number by last week, but wanted to wait until Jubilee celebrations were over. Others have suggested it was Boris Johnson's reception at the Jubilee that got the letters over that line. The rest of today was then set for speculation as to who would vote for and against the Prime Minister. As it stands at the time of this broadcast, 147 have stated publicly they will be voting for Boris Johnson, and around 45 have said they'll be voting against. Of course, there's a much bigger incentive to say publicly, if you will vote for the PM, than there is to say publicly that you won't. It's always a risk to say you're going to vote against the guy in case he keeps his job. What's also significant is that when John Stevens of the Mail made a similar tally in 2018, Theresa May had public endorsements from over 50% of her MPs by lunchtime on the day of the confidence vote. Boris Johnson is still short of that. He's looking for 180 MPs. That's what he needs. Ash, obviously we're going to talk in detail about all the context of this. First of all, I want your snap prediction. Boris Johnson, sachet he stays or sachet away? My snap predictions are always wrong. So take this with a pinch of salt. But I think that he will stay. And let me tell you my reasoning. I don't think that the Tories like to commit regicide unless or until they've got a successor in mind. Now, Rishi Sunak has been tarnished by the non-dom revelations regarding his wife. He now seems like a kind of slippery eel when it comes to his family's tax arrangements. You've got Liz Trust, who is popular amongst the Tory faithful, but let's face it, she comes across like a total political lightweight. Penny Morden is lining herself up, but she's perhaps not yet ready to pull the trigger. And Jeremy Hunt, while he might be beloved by the liberal commentariat, is not somebody who can necessarily entertain the confidence and support of the bulk of either the parliamentary party 
or indeed the Tory grassroots. So I don't think that is going to happen now. And I think second of all, you've got these two by-elections to come in Tiverton and in Wakefield. Now, if I was a would-be conservative prime minister, I would want to force the prime minister to resign in disgrace rather than leaving him the option of rolling the dice and calling a snap general election. I've heard people propose this idea that he might, you know, say let's have a snap general election. I personally don't really get it. I mean, why would why would he do that if he lost this? I mean, is he even able to if he lost this? And also, I mean, the conservatives at this point in time would lose, wouldn't they? So I I didn't really understand that threat. So the threat is I'm taking you all down with me, number one. Number two, I think there are some calculations within conservative circles of it's only going to get worse from here, not simply in terms of Partygate and sleaze allegations, but also you've got a cost of living crisis, which is going to hurt Tory voters' incomes as well, because of the fact that energy prices are going to be impacting asset-rich homeowners, as well as the income and asset-poor as well. So I think that that would be the thought behind roll of the dice. Um, Boris Johnson isn't really somebody who likes to resign in disgrace or feel himself forced out when he's in the corner. He prefers to lash out. So that's me going, would you, if you were Penny Morden or you know, if you were, you know, Rishi Sunak and you really, really, really wanted that top job, would you be pulling the trigger now when you still got cards left to play? Would you like to do it when, you know, he's in a much worse state? In terms of who could be lined up to replace him, I think you you forgot someone, Ash. Where's Streeting? <laughs> wrong, wrong party. That's for another He's too right wing for the Tory party. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, let's look at the arguments being made for and against Boris Johnson on the Tory benches. We'll start with against. We can save the more embarrassing odes to Johnson for later. The case that it was time for a change was first summarised in this memo circulating among MPs over the weekend. Its author or authors remain unknown, but it warns that Boris Johnson is no longer an electoral asset and, if left in post, will lead the party to a substantial defeat in 2024. Goes on Partygate and the Prime Minister's denials of it in the House of Commons represent a major breach of trust with the British population, including 2019 Conservatives, many of whom have abandoned the party already. Partygate is not going away. Allegations of a birthday party hitherto uninvestigated in the flat on June the 19th, 2020, has not been denied by Downing Street. And they say the entire purpose of the government now appears to be the sustenance of Boris Johnson as prime minister. It goes on to say, and you've got some stats here, the booing of Boris Johnson at the Jubilee Thanksgiving service tells us nothing that data does not. There is no social group that trusts him, even with 55% of current conservatives calling him untrustworthy against only 25% saying he is trustworthy. The damage done to trust in Boris Johnson is such that popular policies are falling flat with the public, e.g. cost of living measures. A pollster has dubbed him the conservative Corbyn because of this, an analogy we don't necessarily like on this show. The recent YouGov MRP poll showed us losing 85 of 88 Labour-facing seats at the next general election. Bookmakers expect us to lose the red wall seat of Wakefield comfortably. Uh, there was a poll on the weekend showing Labour 20 points ahead in that seat, which would be pretty terrible for the Conservatives. Today saw more people make those arguments with their names attached. Obviously, I said that one was, was anonymous. Those people included Jesse Norman. He backed Boris Johnson in the 2019 leadership election and served on the front bench until last year. Early this morning, he released a letter saying Johnson should stand down. And these were some of the reasons given. 
So he said, first, as Sue Gray's report underlines, you have presided over a culture of casual lawbreaking at 10 Downing Street in relation to COVID. To describe yourself as vindicated by the report is grotesque. That's opposition um, to Johnson's reaction to the Sue Gray report. Secondly, both in the Queen's speech and elsewhere, your current policy priorities are deeply questionable. Breach of the Northern Irish Protocol would be economically very damaging, politically foolhardy, and almost certainly illegal. He says you are a leader of the Conservative and Unionist Party, yet you are putting the union itself gravely at risk, and the Rwanda policy is ugly, likely to be counterproductive and of doubtful legality. Privatisation of Channel 4 is an unnecessary and provocative attempt to address a political non-issue during a time of crisis at a significant cost to the independent UK film and TV industry. Um, so criticisms there on both policy and principle on, on how Boris Johnson has behaved in government. Worth saying, lots of people have, have pointed to this as relevant, Jesse Norman is married to Kate Bingham, who ran the pretty effective vaccine task force, probably the one thing that the Conservatives got right over the course of the pandemic. And that's relevant as Boris Johnson likes to argue it was him overseeing the vaccine rollout that gives him the right to stay in the job. That's what his, his allies have been trotting out today. And it's interesting that the husband of the person who actually ran that program doesn't seem to think that's particularly significant. Maybe his role wasn't as crucial as his allies like to make out. Next up, we have Jeremy Hunt. So later in the morning, he tweeted this. Having been trusted with power, Conservative MPs know in our hearts we are not giving the British people the leadership they deserve. We are not offering the integrity, competence and vision necessary to unleash the enormous potential of our country. And because we are no longer trusted by the electorate, who knows this too, we are set to lose the next general election. Anyone who believes our country is stronger, fairer and more prosperous when led by Conservatives should reflect that the consequences of not changing will be to hand the country to others who do not share those values. Today's decision is change or lose. I will be voting for change. Following Hunt was John Penrose MP, who until this morning served as Boris Johnson's anti-corruption champion. The Sue Gray report is very, very serious set of criticisms about leadership, and it says that goes right to the top. That means the Prime Minister. And one of the key principles underlying and running like a stick of rock all the way through the ministerial code is leadership. That's one of the seven Nolan principles in public life. Um, and he didn't address that at all. And the difficulty is that, broadly speaking, if you read the Sugray report, you can't reach any other conclusion, I think, than that he's breached that very fundamental principle. She says so in terms. Um, and therefore, he must have breached the ministerial code. And that is normally a resignation issue. It should be a resignation issue for him. It's certainly a resignation issue for me. That was a very, very brave resignation, as I'm not sure who would want to hire Boris Johnson's anti-corruption champion. It doesn't look great on any CV. Penrose also happens to be the husband of Dido Harding, who was appointed to run the £37 billion test and trace program without any open application process. Harding would go on to blow a significant amount of cash by paying numerous private consultants £1,000 a day. So this is the anti-corruption champion in the government. You couldn't make it up. Now, let's move on to those who've spoken in favour of the Prime Minister. Unsurprisingly, that included a number of Johnson's allies in Cabinet. First up, this is Dominic Raab. The choice is going to be very clear 
Uh, we've got a Prime Minister who's got the big calls right on the vaccine rollout, on the getting the economy fired up, the leadership he's shown on Ukraine. We've got a whole packed agenda. We've got a general election in less than two years, packed agenda on levelling up on skills, of course, the cost of living, uh, the uh, crime and law enforcement, which is one of my areas working with Priti Patel. Or we can turn inwards with what I think the public will view as a, a rather self-indulgent bout of talking to ourselves. Now let's go to the most loyal of all of Johnson's allies, Nadine Dorries. You know, today Russia is firing rockets into Kyiv. We've got a global cost of living crisis because we can't get wheat out of Kyiv to the rest of the world. There are some really huge issues which the Prime Minister needs to focus on and we as a cabinet and government do too. So this is a distraction, we want to get this out of the way and then move on with the business of government tomorrow. This is a very well organised campaign. It's a perfect storm for some. It's Remainers who are taking in others who are disaffected and for a number of reasons, those who, who lost their jobs in cabinet or as ministers. And I'm afraid anyone who says that this isn't organised is not telling you the truth. It is a very well organised campaign by a small number of individuals, some who believe that they should be the next prime minister. Which individuals? Well, you know, I'm not going to say, but it's a small number of individuals who've organised and whipped up this store. And I'm afraid we're going to reach a point where people aren't going to vote for the Conservative Party because people don't vote for divided parties. So we need to get this vote over and done with. And those MPs need to hear a clear message. You know, we know just now that the Conservative Party donors have said themselves that they aren't going to support the party if, if the Prime Minister is removed. I think a number of MPs in marginal seats need to hear that and a need to understand what they're doing. £80 million those donors have donated to the Conservative Party over recent times. It's those, do those donors that have helped us to win the election, and they need to hear that message. That was a characteristically eclectic set of arguments from Dorries. We can't get rid of Boris Johnson because Russia is bombing Kyiv. It's all actually a Remainer plot, and our millionaire donors like Boris Johnson too much to get rid of him. Ash, I want your comments on those interventions, and particularly, um, I think that defence from Doris was, was very telling, wasn't it? It was. I mean, I thought the delivery of the opening section of her defence of Boris Johnson was hilariously flimsy. It was like when my mum used to tell me off for like not doing the washing up, and I'd be like, yeah, but mum, the situation in Chechnya is actually very serious. And I just think you need to get a sense of perspective. Like you can almost tell she didn't quite buy what she was saying. You only really saw her come alive when she was subtweeting Jeremy Hunt, that section about disaffected Remainers, some of whom are seeking vengeance because they wanted to be prime minister themselves. And when she started hovering the sword of Damocles over that 80 million pounds from conservative donors, now, I don't think that she is telling the truth. Those donors towards the Conservative Party reward electoral sense. I don't think they're wholly sentimental about Boris Johnson, the individual. And the problem is, is that Boris Johnson, through nobody's actions but his own, has managed to torpedo the electoral gains of 2019. Because what was expected, and this was always part of, you know, the Dominic Cummings plan, is you use Brexit to realign the country. So those, you know, asset rich but income poor Labour to Tory switches are able to deliver a whole bunch of constituencies that previously the Conservatives had not been able to touch. And then those people 
are your attack dogs. You know, they really are your Praetorian guard. And as you try and refashion how Westminster works in favor of your own particular vision, using Brexit as the kind of hammer to get it done, these are the people who will feel personally indebted to you for their careers. That was supposed to be the plan. But because of all of this, you know, internal squabbling over who got the prime minister spokesman job, of course, rather than going to an ally of Dominic Cummings, it goes to an ally of Carrie Johnson, Allegra Stratton, then the whole job gets torpedoed anyway. And then afterwards, you've got this total lack of continence on Boris Johnson's part. He's just like, birthday cake, don't mind if I diddly. You know, there's a real inability to exercise any form of, you know, I'm not even talking about morality. I'm just talking about basic laws of political self-preservation. And because of that, you've got these, you know, 2019 intake, who rather than feeling personally grateful to Boris Johnson for delivering them their careers, they're going, well, hang on, I'm in a marginal here. You know, I'm not in, you know, Tory voting, you know, commuter shires. I'm actually in a seat which could quite easily flip back to red as easily as it turned blue. And that is the, you know, the Boris Johnson strategy in tatters. And that is why I don't think that Tory donors are going to be particularly sentimental about him as the individual. They're not sentimental people. Yeah, it's interesting. It's like it's a strange argument anyway to say he's got to stay because the donors like him and we can't win elections without their millions of pounds. Like it's it's not really something you should be proud of. I also agree with you. I don't find it particularly believable. I mean, if what you want is for the Conservative Party to protect the interests of, of, of capital, I mean, there are a bunch of contenders to replace him who are going to do that just as effectively as him, and you know, potentially more effectively because he now looks like a massive electoral liability. So obviously some of them have written this letter. I really don't think a post-Johnson Conservative Party is going to struggle to make money, though, because they're still going to be the party of bungs to the rich and giving people planning permission if they make donations that are big enough for their billion-pound developments. I mean, we've seen it before and we'll continue to see it after Boris Johnson is gone. Um, We're going to go to a couple more interventions. As you saw, both Rob and Doris chose TV studios to make their pitch to Tory MPs, one of them in Parliament, in fact. Others were more original with their set choice, though. This was backbencher Andrea Jenkins speaking outside a train toilet. Hi, as you can see, I'm on the train. I'm coming down from Wakefield to London to pledge my support today for our Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Now, Boris Johnson, let's not forget what he's had to deal with since he's been the Prime Minister. Uh, more challenges than any other peace in peacetime. Despite all the odds against us in Parliament and the Remainers and the media, um, he delivered Brexit. On top of that, look at the pandemic. We've delivered a global leading vaccination program. And look at the Prime Minister today. Look how he's been leading the way in support for Ukraine. Prime Minister Boris Johnson has got my full support today. Jenkins' endorsements don't always portend victory. She tweeted this on the eve of the 2020 presidential election. Good luck today, real Donald Trump. Ash, what I want to know from you, we've got Jesse Norman, Jeremy Hunt, Robert Penrose on one side, Nadine Dorries, Dominic Raab and Andrea Jenkins on the other. Who would you prefer to have fighting your corner in a situation like this? <laughs> Who would I want fighting on my behalf for anything? It would be Nadine Dorries on amphetamines, right? <laughs> I think she could take on 
you know, like heavyweight boxers, quite frankly. But I think that ultimately Boris Johnson is a man who has an expiry date on his political career. And it's just a case of whether or not he goes now before there is a clear leadership contender, which means that he might have a couple of cards to play in terms of, I will take all of you down with me. Or does he go later down the line, potentially even into an election loss, which allows for something of like a clean slate of Tory leadership to come in? I don't know, but it doesn't seem like he's somebody who's a, you know, a two-term prime minister, really. Let's move on to Boris Johnson's defences of himself. So Johnson hasn't spoken publicly today, but he did write a three-page letter to all Conservative MPs. It ended with this plea. I know that over recent months I have come under a great deal of fire, and I know that experience has been painful for the whole party. Some of the criticism has perhaps been fair, some less so. Where there have been valid points, I have listened and learned and made significant changes. And I will, of course, continue to listen and learn from colleagues about the improvements you wish to see. But I cannot stress too much that we have a golden chance to put this behind us now. With your support, I believe that tonight we have a great prize within our grasp. We can put an end to the media's favorite obsession. We can get on with the job without, without the noises off. And I am absolutely confident that if we can unite in the days ahead, then in due course we will win again repay the trust of the 14 million who voted for us and continue to serve the country we love. So all of this presents a golden opportunity. Boris Johnson also spoke to MPs in person at a meeting of the 1922 committee that was held without the press present, but lobby journalists were told what happened. This is a selection, Paul War, loud banging of desks for Boris Johnson as he arrives for crunch 1922 committee meetings. This is sort of the classic Eton-Oxbridge debating society way of saying that you support this person. Rowena Mason, Boris Johnson to MPs, let us refuse to dance to the tune of the media. I will lead you to victory again, and the winners will be the people of this country. Um, Boris Johnson pretending he is the victim of a press. Obviously, you know, <laughs> there are huge swathes of the press who love this guy. They've actually followed the public when it comes to outrage about party gate. And this is probably the most interesting one. It's from Patrick Maguire. Asked about the conduct described in the Sue Gray report, Boris Johnson told MPs, quote, I'd do it again. He would do it all again. That cavalier attitude seemed to be shared by other senior figures in the party. This exchange following that 1922 committee meeting was shared by a journalist at the Times. So, journalist says, did he talk about the Privileges Committee? So that's the group of MPs who were going to investigate him. Senior party source, even you might find other interesting things to talk about between now and September or whenever this kicks off that matters so much more to your viewers, listeners and readers than yet another inquiry into a bunch of events, into a bunch of events. Is there anyone here who hasn't got pissed in their lives? And the journalists ask, what, generally? And the senior party source, is there anyone here who doesn't like a glass of wine to decompress after a massive, and I, I don't know what comes after that? a massive fuck-up when it comes to protecting care homes during a deadly pandemic. Insert there. Apparently that was a senior source briefing for the Prime Minister, so basically speaking with his blessing. My question for you, Ash, does Boris Johnson want to be out of his job? Is he bored of this? And so just goes in front of the MPs and says, yes, I'd do it again. Who amongst us hasn't got pissed and broken our own rules, which we said in the middle of a pandemic, which we keep saying is our, sort of our greatest achievement, even though our terrible decisions caused tens of thousands of unnecessary deaths. I think that this is something which is 
common to a lot of politicians, which is the thing which made people warm to you in the first place can also become the source of your undoing. And I think in Boris Johnson's case, it was this attitude of, I'm on, have I got news for you? So if I pretend that, you know, everything is sort of faintly absurd and I'm faintly absurd too, know what I'd do to gain, who hasn't in their entire lives gotten pissed? Just doing that kind of buffoonish, posh boy shtick, you know, that's something which got him to where he is, playing that kind of character. And now the stakes have changed. One is that once you've got the prime minister's job, everyone else wants it too. Two is that you're in the middle of an economic crisis, which you know is not going to get any better. And suddenly your own position looks a lot less stable. And three, you are getting hammered in the polls over that very sense of the rules not applying to you, which you thought everybody liked you for. Boris Johnson isn't somebody who is adaptable or willing to change. So I think he just says the first thing which comes into his head, which is let me play this character again, because I'm not really sorry for what I did. And obviously it's going to go down like a cup of cold sick because you've got a board lobby who are interested in a big scalp. The Partygate stuff, it is the quintessential lobby story. It's something which the news desks love and the political editors love. And it is something which I think divides people along the lines of values, but it doesn't affect people's lives very much. It keeps you from talking about the real dividing lines in terms of policy and political vision for the entire country. You know, the lobby hacks are bored. They're kind of like, well, yeah, we we, we want to turn up the heat. We want to scalp. We want to um, show that we've still got some teeth. You've got nervous backbenchers who are looking at the size of their own majorities and going, uh-oh, this might not be uh, you know, the surefire election-winning prime minister that we thought he was. And then the third thing is, of course, you've got ambitious ministers. So within that context, you've got someone like Boris Johnson who never has been particularly talented, right? He's not a great politician. He's not a canny strategist. He's not somebody who is, you know, particularly brilliant at political machinations. He's been able to, I think, coast on the talent of others and perform to the camera, mug up to the camera in a way which sustains his own prominence and role within the public eye. But you put him under real pressure. He's not someone who can rise to the occasion. Next story. One of the more enjoyable elements of the vote of no confidence build-up has been Tory big hitters lashing out at each other in public. The noisiest on this front has been, no prizes for guessing, Nadine Dorries. In response to Jeremy Hunt tweeting that he had no confidence in Boris Johnson, Dorries wrote, On the afternoon of 23rd July 2020, when I was health minister, you telephoned me to tell me that we had to handle the pandemic following the example set by the East China that people testing positive should be removed from their homes and placed into isolation hotels for two weeks. She goes on, you said your wife's family had experience of this during SARS. I said that British people would never tolerate being removed from their homes and loved ones, at which point you demanded I show you the evidence for that. Your handling of the pandemic would have been a disaster. Your pandemic preparation during six years as health secretary was found wanting and inadequate. Your duplicity right now is destabilizing the party and country to serve your own personal ambition more so. You told others that PM and Gov would swiftly collapse on back of Brexit and you would swoop in. You told me as much in Victoria Station after the general election. 
If you had been leader, you'd have handed the keys of number 10 to Corbyn. You've been wrong about almost everything. You are wrong again now. Interesting, Nadine Dorries thinks that in 2020, if we'd have adopted some of the COVID policies of East Asia, that would have been a terrible thing. Obviously, before the vaccine rollout, they were the best in the world when it came to COVID responses. You wouldn't necessarily have had to force people to go into hotels if they were positive. You could just offer them that possibility. That actually would have been a very sensible policy. I'm not sure why she thinks asking for the evidence would be a bad thing. But obviously, the, the biggest thing here is she is saying um, that the Tory government, which has been in power for 12 years, by the way, very poorly prepared for the pandemic. This is a, a Tory, you know, recently she was a health minister, saying that the fault, the bad preparation going into this pandemic was the fault of a Tory health minister. She was a Tory MP at the time, by the way. I'm not sure if she was making noises about the failures of her government at that point in time. Ash, there's some pretty remarkable admissions, aren't they? Well, what this is, is a scorched earth policy from Nadine Dorries. And it is an attempt to dissuade others from doing what Jeremy Hunt has done by going, well, look, I can drag your name through the mud too. And I can list specific instances where we've had particular conversations and I'll go public with it. Thus sort of breaking the rule of omerta, which tends to govern insidery Westminster politics. So that's what she's trying to do there. In terms of the admission about Jeremy Hunt's pandemic preparedness, I think that this is something of saying the quiet bit out loud, which is the way in which the Conservative Party have operated over the last 12 years isn't really as a you know, coherent unit. It's kind of this multi-bodied organism where in order to ensure the survival of the whole, other bits get sort of amputated and cut off and chucked away by another part of that body, which then sort of like rises to dominance. That's how it works. And over the course of the last, you know, 12 years of conservative governments now, what you've had is a program of slash and burn of the public sector, a total hobbling of the state's capacity to do things, and a kind of you know, almost a, a, a continual sense of crisis when it comes to meeting some of the most important and pressing issues of the day, whether that's something like our healthcare system or elderly care or uh, climate change or indeed pandemic preparedness. And every single person who is part of the Parliamentary Conservative Party knows this, that that is part of the deal. With each new cabinet, with each new government, you know, each new election manifesto, what your job is, is to sort of be able to continue shitting in the swimming pool of public discourse, all while kind of condemning this imagined Tory who isn't you for fouling up the waters in the first place. That's what they do. Now, normally, that's by implication and suggestion rather than going for, you know, the RPG that Nadine Dorries has reached for. But it is something, I think, quite revealing about how the Conservative Party conceive of themselves as a political organism. Shitting in the swimming pool of public discourse. I love it, Ash. Always the best metaphors. It wasn't just Nadine Dorries getting involved in these flame wars. Jacob Rees-Mogg also got involved. He was targeting Jesse Norman, who's another former minister, who came out against the Prime Minister. Jesse points out that he was energy minister and unfortunately no proper energy plan was developed. So 
Mr Norman must take some responsibility for that. He doesn't do so in his letter. So Tory energy policy has been shit as well as their pandemic preparation. An interesting pitch from Jacob Rees-Mogg. Later in the day, Nadine Dorries was asked by Beth Rigby about her tweets attacking Jeremy Hunt. Some people would say that it's sort of demeaning of the office of a cabinet minister to make such personal blue-on-blue attacks against a colleague who doesn't agree with the prime minister. I mean, he's allowed to disagree. I mean, what do you say to those people that are quite shocked by what you've said of Jeremy Hunt today? Well, if they're shocked, it's because they're probably people who are going to vote against the prime minister anyway. And what I would say is probably demeaning of a former cabinet minister and somebody who puts themselves forward as a potential leadership candidate to repeatedly say they're not going to issue a challenge while we're at war with Ukraine. And then on the day Russia fires rockets into Kyiv, issue that challenge. So I assume that was a slip of the tongue when she said we're at war with Ukraine still because we're not at war with Ukraine, but we're also not at war with Russia. So, I mean, it's pretty dangerous sort of diplomatically making it seem as if we are just because you want to win a leadership election or, you know, avoid a leadership election. Ash, I want to know from you, though, what did you make of, you know, the only people that would be shocked by my tweets about Jeremy Hunt are people that wanted Boris Johnson to leave anyway, so shut up. I, I was just laughing because I was like, can you imagine if your last moments on this earth we're hearing the nuclear missiles speeding towards your city because Nadine Dorries accidentally declared war on Russia. Can you imagine if that's how it all ends for us? Um, like, I mean, I, I think, I think um, people used to talk about Gordon Brown's government of many talents. I think that you'd call Boris Johnson's cabinet one of not entirely obvious talents. Neither Jacob Rees-Mogg nor Nadine Dorries, I think, are particularly skillful here. Jacob Rees-Mogg, I think, has cultivated an aura, a mirage of intelligence purely by being privately educated and dressing like a Victorian orphan who is like mown down by a cart horse or something. But neither of them are really Parliament's best and brightest. Even then, that's grading on a curve. I think when Nadine Torres is like, well, you know, people who'd be shocked are people, you know, who weren't going to vote anyway. Has she ever heard the phrase, you attract more flies with honey than with vinegar? Um, I mean, she may have heard that and then gone, well, you know, no one ever said anything about napalm. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Like, it just seems counterproductive. (laughs) I mean, there was, I never know how much to believe these things, but there were like lots of the lobby journalists tweeting that an MP told them they weren't decided yet. Um, whether or not to vote for Boris Johnson in the confidence vote. But the Dean Dorries' like, tweets about Jeremy Hunt persuaded them to vote against him because they were like, the people in charge of this party are dangerous. We need to get rid of them before they can do any more damage. Now, I don't know, that might just be, you know, MPs like to give lobby journalists these stories that make them sound like they're not completely amoral, like, like they're not just working in their own self-interest. Like, oh, she's crossed the line with these very undignified tweets of hers. Like, I'm not sure if that's what really motivates them. But at the same time, it does seem like a really strange strategy. I mean, you have one job as a <laughs> Boris Johnson outrider today, which is to try and essentially sweet talk Tory MPs to say, look, 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 you know, our interests are your interests. Boris Johnson is, you know, whatever it might seem at this point of time, a safe pair of hands. You know, you, you, you should vote for the guy. It's also worth noting, this is a secret ballot. Like the whole, I'm going to intimidate you to make sure you vote for my guy, otherwise I'm going to attack you publicly. I'm not sure what the thinking is when it is a secret ballot. 
It's also interesting, actually, that MPs were apparently, Tory MPs were apparently banned from taking their phones into the 1922 committee room where they vote. This is speculation from my part, but one possible explanation of that is that the chair of the 1922 committee recognised that there might be people on the government side who are asking people to take a picture of their ballot. I would find that totally plausible and in keeping of this government. There are also lots of lobby journalists tweeting that Boris Johnson was offering any, everyone a job if they um, vote for him, which to be honest, isn't you know, not too much to worry about when you think of who they'll be replacing. It can't get worse in most of these positions. We are going to be going to the result of that no confidence vote in Boris Johnson. That will be in under 30 minutes that it's announced. Of course, the, the voting has now closed. It's been closed for half an hour, but they're waiting till 9pm to make the announcement. Apparently, Boris Johnson is going to get a text first, um, so it doesn't come as a complete surprise to him. First, though, I want to talk a little bit more about our fundraiser. And we've got loads of you watching tonight, which is fabulous and means it's an excellent opportunity for us to talk about the fact that we have been and for the last few weeks running a fundraiser where we're specifically trying to get up to 10,000 supporters, 10,000 regular supporters. We currently have about 8,200. We started the campaign with 6,000. And sort of our our thinking here was given how much our reach has increased, we really um, want to convert more of you guys into regular supporters so that we continue to to expand this organization, continue to make the content we do and to, to continue to improve it. I want to take advantage of having co-founder Aaron Bastani here. Aaron, can you talk briefly about the fundraiser, why our viewers tonight should get involved? Well, I mean, it's just a, a remarkable success so far. We we started this whole thing with 6,000. We've now got, I think, 8,400. The plan is to get to 10,000, which seems very plausible, I think, by the end of this month. We are doing it because we need to address, obviously, massive limitations and shortfalls in the British media. If you want to understand how a personage like Boris Johnson is even possible, you have to uh, look at the media. And yes, he is a problem. Yes, he obviously needs to be removed from power. But he has been aided and abetted and enabled by hundreds, if not thousands of people in the British media landscape, uh, the blue ticks, the celebrities, the newspaper editors, the producers, the columnists, the presenters, the reporters, too many to name. Uh, And the British political media in particular is rotten. It needs cleaning up. And we need your help to do that. Help us get to 10,000 to build an Navarra Media army up to the requisite strength. You know, the Spartans had 300 at Thermopylae. We're going to need a few more than that, but we're getting there. I love your historical analogies, which is why I'm very glad we got you for the next section, because we are going to talk about some past votes of no confidence. We're obviously waiting a bit longer until these ones get announced. In the meantime, we can look at the most recent vote of no confidence that was held in the Conservative Party, because in December 2018, Theresa May, you might remember, faced a confidence vote. It was driven by opposition from Brexiteers to her checkers deal. And this was how she argued for MPs to back her in that contest. The British people want us to get on with it. And they want us to focus on the other vital issues that matter to them too. Building a stronger economy, delivering first-class public services and the homes that families need. These are the public's priorities and they must be the Conservative Party's priorities too. We must and we shall deliver on the referendum vote and seize the opportunities that lie ahead. So those are pretty similar arguments to those that we've heard from Boris Johnson and his allies earlier all about people wanting the government to get on with the job of governing. 
Although I suppose this government, as Theresa May, had a problem, which is no one really knew what they wanted to do and what they did want to do wasn't particularly popular. That, though, along with May's pledge to resign before the next general election got her over the line. So that was significant. She pledged that she would resign even if she won the confidence vote before the general election, but she would stay um, to, to navigate Brexit. And the result in that situation was that 200 Conservative MPs voted for her compared to 117 voting against. So she won, but there was a big rebellion. The extent of that rebellion was seen as damaging or seen to be damaging to her authority. And this is how Jacob Rees-Mogg responded. This is a very bad result for the Prime Minister. 117 votes against her, much worse than she thought. A third of the parliamentary party, the overwhelming majority of backbenchers have voted against her. So the message today to Theresa May is that she has lost her moral and political authority, even if she's got a slightly bigger number. Those words have been read back to Mogg. This is what he said after the confidence vote in Johnson was announced. One is enough. That's the rule in a democracy. If you win by one, you've won. And do you feel that if this Prime Minister won the vote tonight by one vote, he would feel that he had an appropriate mandate to continue on in his role as Prime Minister? One, one is enough. It's no good saying that the rules of the party um, say something and then behind it, unofficially, there is some other rule that nobody knows and is invented for the purpose. Um, I obviously want the Prime Minister to get as big a majority as possible. I think that would be helpful and it would close this matter down uh, between now and the next general election, which would be good for the country, good for the Conservative Party. Um, but one is enough. So just to be clear, if I was to press you on this, forgive me, Mr. Rees-Mogg, if he won by one vote, he would have, in your opinion, a clear mandate to continue on in his role as Prime Minister? Ms. Burley, to be absolutely clear, the answer is yes. Are you sure? Yes. I can't stand that guy. What an obnoxious... Oh, Mrs. Burley, the answer is yes. What I want to know from you, who was correct, the 2018 version of Jacob Rees-Mogg or the 2022 version of Jacob Rees-Mogg? Well, they were both right in the sense that you will say whatever is politically convenient to achieve your aim. A few years ago, he wanted to oust Theresa May so he could be part of a Boris Johnson-led government, using Brexit as a vehicle to refashion the state in his favour. So that would mean deregulation, low taxes, a real slash and burn approach to the social safety net, all while doing it in the voice of the demon headmaster so that people don't see just how much of a vandal you really are. That was his goal. And now his goal is to cling on to power because who's going to want Jacob Rees-Mogg in their cabinet? Whoever succeeds Boris Johnson, whether that's now, whether that's later down the line, will probably want to distance themselves from the Johnsonites who will be seen as, you know, a bunch of uh, screeching dilettantes who weren't particularly serious, they're going to want to clear out the old guard. And that means Jacob Rees-Mogg. So he's living by the one golden rule of politics, which is cover your ass, do what needs to be done to get through the day. And even then, he might not have been successful at that. I suppose the thing for Boris Johnson to remember is that Theresa May was gone within seven months. So there'll be lots of people, you know, if Boris Johnson does win this confidence vote, it is the case that technically, according to Conservative Party rules, there cannot be another one within 12 months. So this is 
you know, the argument is if, if MPs fail this time around, then Boris Johnson is safe for 12 months. It turns out, you know, that's, that's not necessarily the case. If you have a significant number of MPs voting against you, that you know, tends to significantly damage your authority. And then it is, is hard to run the course. So with Theresa May, she ended up resigning after I think it was the third meaningful vote. So the third time she put her Brexit deal to parliament and it got voted down. And also um, after a disastrous set of European elections where the Conservatives got completely destroyed by the Brexit party. So, so that was the moment when she had to say she it would stand down, even though in theory she could have stayed for another few months. There was also actually talk at the time of potentially changing the rules. So if she hadn't voluntarily resigned, it could have been the case that Graham Brady and the 1922 committee said, yes, the rules are you get 12 months safe if you win. Um, but sorry, love, we've changed them. I don't know if they would, you know, have, have that same attitude to Boris Johnson, but it's perfectly possible. I think it's not outside of the realms of possibility. Let's look at some more precedents, go a little bit further back. Tim Shipman is a journalist at the Sunday Times. He says he's been doing some number crunching. Um, and in the case of a vote of no confidence, to compare results if the rebels get 121 votes. Now he says, if the rebels get 121 votes, Johnson will have done as badly percentage-wise as John Major in 1995. If they get 133 votes, um, he'll have done worse than May in 2018. So there's people voting against Boris Johnson. And if they get 147 votes, that's if 147 people vote that they have no confidence anymore. MPs vote that. But it would be worse than Thatcher versus Heseltine in 1990. Thatcher um, stood down almost immediately after for May. Um, it was, as I've said, about seven months and John Major did go into the next general election, but he, he lost it, as you'll know, in 1997. Aaron, comparisons with previous votes of no confidence in conservative leaders. What can they teach us? How many votes does Johnson need to get to you know, have any chance of staying in post until the next general election? I don't think it even would be that instructive if there weren't many votes against him, because, you know, Margaret Thatcher goes in 1990, I believe. There's a, there's a challenge against her in 89 by a guy called Anthony Mayer. And I think he only got 33 votes. There were lots of small ballots. And then people begin to think the unthinkable, which is, well, we need to, we need to proceed without a woman who's just won us three general elections. Boris Johnson has only won once. So if they can do it to Thatcher on such a small number of votes against her, uh, I think they'll do the same to Johnson. I personally find it hard to believe that he'll he'll lead them into the next general election. Of course, if he if he comes out of this still the leader of the Conservative Party, then they can't do this again. Proceed with another leadership challenge or a vote of no confidence, and then have a leadership election for for twelve months. And then, of course, the converse is John Major, in order to rally his supporters and push back against Eurosceptics, actually himself called for a leadership race. He said, "Come on, bring it on." And John Redwood ran against him, I believe, in 1995. And Redwood got, I think, something like 80 votes. And of course, Major gets absolutely destroyed two years later in 1997. You know, the largest majority ever for a Labour, a Labour government comes in 1997. So, you know, I think if you look at all the precedents, if you look at Thatcher, if you look at Major, if you look at May, it's very hard to see how he comes out at the other end of this and then reasserts himself as an effective politician. And look, there's always a first time for everything, but I, I mean, it's, it's very slender. It's about a hundred to one. I mean, we said this, um, we said this before, Michael, you know, if he comes back and the Tories 
don't lose the next general election and Labour, you know, they, they, they somehow can maintain power, then it would be the greatest political comeback of all time. It would be a far greater comeback than what Jeremy Corbyn achieves over the course of the 2017 general election campaign. I mean, I, I do kind of agree with you. I suppose the counter to that would be that he, he will have at least some of the media barons on side. But in terms of where he's coming from and the reputation he has, it, it, it would be probably a more impressive comeback because people know him better. I think, you know, one of the things that people said about Jeremy Corbyn in 2017, one of the things he benefited from is that people didn't, you know, they, they hadn't formed particularly strong opinions about him. Obviously, he'd been attacked a lot, but they formed those opinions during the general election. And that was what scared the establishment so much that they had to spend the next two years completely destroying his reputation because they realized that actually some scare stories in the run-up to an election wasn't enough. You had to drag this man through the mud every day for three years so that you could end the possibility of, of socialism in Britain. That's my analysis of it anyway. I want to talk about a group of people who, if this was a Labour Party leadership contest or Labour Party vote of confidence, we definitely have a lot to say about. We probably talk about them less when it comes to the Conservative Party. That is party members. What do they think? YouGov have today conducted a snap poll of Tory party members. And these were the results that they came up with. So they asked people, or they asked 506 Conservative members, do you think it was right or wrong for Conservative MPs to submit letters of no confidence in Boris Johnson to the 1922 committee? 50% um, say it was right, 44% say it was wrong. So a majority think um, that was the correct course of action. Then they're asked, do you think Conservative MPs should or should not vote to remove Boris Johnson as Prime Minister and Conservative Party leader? Should is only 42 and 53 should not. So the, the collective wisdom of the membership is to have this vote of no confidence and for Boris Johnson to win it. And then they say, imagine that Boris Johnson wins the vote of no confidence by only a small margin. Do you think he should stay as Prime Minister and Conservative Party leader or should he resign? And 58% say stay and 39% say resign. So in many ways, that's actually the worst of all possible worlds for the electoral giants of the Conservative Party. The vote of no confidence happens. He wins it narrowly and then he stays on anyway. That's what they want. There was a separate poll done by Conservative Home, which is a website popular with Conservative Party members. They found a different result. A majority of them want Conservative MPs to remove Boris Johnson. So 55% say Conservative MPs should vote to remove him as party leader, and 41% say they shouldn't. 3.4% don't know. The methodology there was slightly different to YouGov. It's not a weighted poll because it's a website doing it, but they said they go to the same panel in all of these polls. And when it came to previous panels, previous times, they've asked similar questions to similar people. It was never the case that people wanted Boris Johnson to go. So there is a genuine movement there when it comes to the opinion of Tory members. Ash, my question for you is kind of a philosophical one, in a way. I think if this was a Labour leader who we were in favour of, this was Jeremy Corbyn, for example, I mean, there was an example of this. Obviously, the vote of no confidence that Labour MPs did didn't have any meaning because it wasn't a legitimate thing in, in the rule book. That's why we called it a coup. But if it were the case that you know, a rule change got made so that Prime Minister Jeremy Corbyn could be brought down by a majority of Labour MPs, even if Labour members wanted him to stay. I mean, we'd think that was undemocratic. Should we have a similar problem here? Mm, so it's a slightly different thing when it's a sitting Prime Minister. And I think that tells you something about there being this big glaring hole in our democracy, which is after David Cameron uh, 
wins an outright majority in 2015. The prime minister which has followed has been the result of internal party machinations, first and foremost, rather than a general election which has followed afterwards. So there is, I think, something which is more, I would guess I would say just as sort of more meaningful to the rest of the country because you're dealing with a prime minister, not not simply a leader of the opposition. Now, I think it would be totally legitimate for the Conservative Party members, I mean, all eight of them who are still alive, to decide that they want to keep Boris Johnson in place. That's the right of a party member. And according to the rules that govern our democracy, rules which I don't think are fit for purpose, that would be fair enough in order to keep him in place. That wouldn't really be good for the Conservative Party overall. And I think what it would do to politics would be absolutely dreadful. It would mean you're still in this holding pattern of scandal, volatility, non-action, which also prevents anything else from being done apart from these quite, I think, offensive moments of lip service from the likes of Nadine Dorries, where you have ministers go on television to talk about how there are so many more important issues, which of course are being utterly neglected by the cabinet. So I think that democratically, yes, it would be legitimate, but it speaks pretty poorly of our democracy. It speaks pretty poorly of the functioning of our constitutional norms that since 2016, we've had a new prime minister, not because we, the people, have voted them in initially, but because they've taken over the reins from a recently defenestrated Conservative Party leader. I want to know Aaron's take on this as well, because I, I can imagine how we'd be talking if this was a Corbyn prime minister. What do you think our, our attitude should be here when it comes to Boris Johnson? I think Ash is right. The whole, the whole thing is a mess, Michael. The whole thing is a mess. And of course, the media love it. The pundits love it. Because these stories, and you were saying this for an hour before I came along, these stories are their bread and butter for a reason because they they feel important as a result. It means that the theatre of politics and of our nation's life is at Westminster in front of the cameras and they're narrating that story. Clearly, that's not what politics is meant to be. It's not meant to be show business for ugly people. It's meant to be about how do you organise society, what ideas should we sort of operate our, our society along? How do we solve the various problems that we're confronted with, both collectively and individually? That's clearly what politics is meant to be, but for the pundits and for the, for the media class, who are, by the way, are, are perfectly ambivalent about the status quo because they broadly benefit from it. They don't really want to engage with that kind of politics. And so I think we're kind of stuck in this groove as we were after, really particularly after 2015, but I think I should go back further, 2010, you know, the, the Tories in 2010 don't get a majority. They don't get a majority. They only get a majority in 2015 because they promise a Brexit vote. Of course, again, we have a hung parliament in 2017. We have between 2017, 2092 horrendous years where we effectively don't have an operating government. And we've returned there again. This is not about a, a particular individual not being talented or a particular set of MPs who are just uh, malicious and uh, bereft of any actual uh, competence or ability, although that applies to both major parties. This is about a systemic failing in British politics. I think that means having constitutional reform. Aaron, spit it out. What do you mean? I mean, front and center electoral reform. Until we have proportional representation in this country, I don't think we'll be putting and promoting the best people into the Houses of Parliament. I think we'll have people who depend on favours, nepotism, who are good at climbing the greasy pole and are very loyal, but who aren't very good at solving problems. Again, that afflicts both parties. And we're all paying the price. We're paying the price 
for a political system which promotes loyalty and butt-kissing over talent and occasionally challenging the status quo. That's how societies renew and reinvigorate themselves, after all. I think the British system in particular is now incapable of doing that. And so do I think that MPs should be able to do this? Well, I, th I don't think they should be able to do lots of things. Uh, I, think, I, I think we should probably have a president, a ceremonial president. I think we should have a prime minister uh, along the lines of what you see, say, in, in France. Uh, we can have conversations around that, but I... I sort of reject the premise of the question that so much is rotten and corrupt in terms of how we do politics in this country. Also, let's talk about devolution and giving greater powers to Wales, Northern Ireland and Scotland and referenda on whether they want to, want to be members of the UK. There's so much I think I'd rather talk about than, oh, do Tory MPs deserve to do this? You know, if Tory MPs, no confidence Johnson, and then it goes to party membership and Johnson wins, I don't really see a problem. Interestingly enough, you know, conservative members didn't really choose their leaders until the 60s. You know, this is quite a new thing in British politics, the idea that memberships and uh, act as a conduit for the, for the broader general public to have some kind of accountability and scrutiny over the actual prime minister. This was a very alien concept for one of the two major parties until very recently. Again, we live in a, a country with a feudal, archaic electoral political system which thinks it's in the 21st century. Of course it's not. And that dissonance, that distance between the 19th and the 21st centuries explains this kind of constant melodrama and decay and collapse and complete inability of our politicians to solve basic problems. Um, I think Boris Johnson can't stand if he's no confidence. So that's how the, the Tory party is a little bit less democratic than Labour. Labour. You could argue it's you know, less relevant when it comes to the Conservative Party than the party of, of Labour and the party of the working class. Obviously, democracy in that party, I think, is a little bit more natural. We can see Tory MPs are in the 1922 committee, so it seems like a, an announcement is going to be quite imminent, but Graham Brady is yet to arrive. There are also some indications some noises coming from lobby journalists who've clearly spoken to some MPs. So Nicholas Watt says, some very long faces on supporters of Boris Johnson after poll closed. One PM ally said of Tory MPs, they are a bunch of lying snakes. I don't trust anything they say. A PM ally who is telling the truth for once, I think. Nick Erdley from the BBC says, sources close to PM confident that he's won. Big question is by how much. So Boris Johnson allies think he has won. And as we said before, Boris Johnson does get told first. He gets a text message from Graham Brady before this public announcement takes place. So it could be um, that that ally of Boris Johnson is genuinely in the know. Whether or not Boris Johnson wins this vote tonight, it is quite likely, I think, that within the next 12 months, there will be a leadership election and one before the next general election. Who would Labour be most scared of? I want to go to you, Ash. Hmm. First, I've got to put it through the filter of who's actually going to get through the Parliamentary Conservative Party vote and the membership vote. And I think that excludes Jeremy Hunt from the running. And I think that Jeremy Hunt, in lots of ways, would cause problems from Keir Starmer because it's essentially Deloitte FC versus Sporting KPMG, right? There's really not <laughs> a huge difference between them. They look very similar, very managerial, very technocratic, and even have similar vocal tones. And I think that if you put them up against each other in a television debate, 
It would be like, you know, that meme where the two Barbies are singing, you're just like me, I'm just like you. Um, there's not a lot to separate them apart from the fact that Keir Starmer has been tarnished that bit more from a longer time in politics, in the public eye, not as a um, backbencher most recently. But I think Jeremy Hunt would be excluded by the Conservative Party membership, which I think leaves us with Rishi Sunak, Michael Gove, Penny Mordaunt, Liz Truss. Liz Truss is really well liked by the Conservative Party grassroots, but I just don't think she's that smart. She always has the air of somebody who has just recently taken like a little hit from a NOS balloon. Do you know what I mean? Like she just doesn't seem to me to be particularly smart or strategic or cold-blooded. And I think when sort of the media honeymoon is over, I don't think that she would necessarily uh, stand up to very much scrutiny at all. So I don't think that she would be a dangerous candidate for Labour. I think Rishi Sunak is somebody who, you know, the hype is wearing off already in a very, very big way. And underneath it all is someone who is five foot five and not cool enough to be termed a short king. So I don't think he's dangerous for Labour, which maybe leaves us with Penny Morden. She sort of removed herself from the fray a bit here. She has kept her cards close to her chest, so maybe she'd be dangerous for Labour. Of course, we're making really big assumptions, which is that the first uh, you know, South Asian leader of the Tory party would be Rishi Sunak. There is, of course, Priti Patel who has been a notably quiet voice around Partygate and defending the Prime Minister. She's somebody who has, I think, taken steps to reduce her profile. And she's somebody who knows how to hit the nastiest triggers for the most vicious politics in this country. So I would think Kistama would face the biggest problems from Priti Patel or Penny Mordaunt. Jeremy Hunt, if he got through the membership, maybe, but I don't think he would. We should see very soon Graham Brady take to the lectern and announce the results. While we're waiting for that, Aaron, I'm going to read you out the, the list of the odds of next Tory leader. You've got Jeremy Hunt on four to one, Penny Morden on 11 to two, Liz Truss on seven to one, Tom Tugendhat on seven to one. Then you've got Rishi Sunak, Ben Wallace, Nadim Zahawi, Michael Gove, Sajid Javid, Dominic Raab. If you were the Labour Party, who would scare you most? Ben Wallace. Interesting. Ben Wallace. Ben Wallace. No two ways about it. Well, the only thing that they can win on right now is national security and, and I think amplify the threat of Russia. They're clearly not going to win in the economy, are they? You know, you've got inflation of 9%. So I think they could maybe present Ben Wallace as a wartime prime minister. That could perhaps work. I think we, we mock Nadine Dorries, Michael, but, you know, she's given Labour the best possible attack line if Jeremy Hunt becomes the Tory leader which is this guy was the health secretary who failed to prepare for a pandemic. So it's easy, by the way, when you're on Twitter and you're following the London Blue Ticks, uh, the big house pundits, to think, oh, actually, yeah, Jeremy Hunt, that would cause Labour problems. Yes, it would, but then you would have a, a reinvigoration of that right of the Tory party's formation. We saw repeatedly with UKIP, the Brexit party, and so on. Jeremy I think I'm Hunt going to interrupt you, Aaron, because I think we are, Go we are going to um, the 1922 committee for the announcement. Uh, I can report as returning officer... Uh, that 359 ballots were cast, no spoiled ballots, that the vote in favour uh, of having confidence in Boris Johnson as leader was 211 votes, 
and the vote against was 148 votes. And therefore, I can announce that the Parliamentary Party does have confidence. Yeah. Yeah. So 211 for, 148 against. So Boris Johnson has won the confidence vote. He remains the leader of the Conservative Party and he remains Prime Minister. But that is a really big rebellion, 148 against 211 for. Aaron, let's go to you first on this. The significance of that result, he remains in place, but I mean, presumably much weaker than he was even this morning. Well, if history is a guide, and of course it's not always a guide, but if history is anything of a guide, then he's as, he's as good as finished. There has never been anybody in recent political history who's been subject to that much internal dissent expressed in a vote and then come back from it. I'm talking from the Conservative Party here. Of course, he, he could defy the rules. Things change. We all know that in politics. Jeremy Corbyn was looking to be the PM in 2018. He collapses to historic defeat in December 2019. Things change. The Tories will think, well, we've got two and a half years to put things right, to land a few punches on Keir Starmer, to hopefully instrumentalize Ukraine. Hopefully inflation ticks down a bit. I mean, it probably will get worse before it gets better. So they'll play for time. Sometimes that works, but I, I think this is far, far too big, Michael. Ash, I want to know your take. Well, just casting your mind back to that little Tim Shipman cut out and keep, this is obviously a worse result for Boris Johnson than Theresa May, than John Major, and worse than Thatcher versus Hazeltine in 1990. So as Aaron said, that is coming off the back for Margaret Thatcher um, after multiple general election wins and you know, I think this was a terrible thing, but ultimately she was very successful in remaking the country in her own image, right? So we're talking about one of the most successful peacetime prime ministers this country has ever known. She gets, you know, absolutely langed after this less than glowing confidence vote. So she wins, but ultimately she doesn't feel that her authority has survived the no confidence vote. Now, Boris Johnson is a very different kind of character. His instinct is to just head down, weather it out. I can survive any scandal. People like me. We'll see if that's his approach. It might be that there's more election pain coming down the line. You've got those two by-elections, Wakefield and Tiverton. Those could be something that forced him into resign. But again, he doesn't strike me as somebody who would willingly accept that he has failed as a prime minister, he's failed as a Conservative Party leader, leader and willingly stepped down, which leaves us with perhaps the last roll of the dice, which is general election, whether that's earlier than the scheduled general election or just trying to tough it out to the next one. But perhaps the most likely option is just that. Boris Johnson can't be shamed out of office precisely because he's got no shame. We've got a very generous uh, super chat from a man named Kay and also a very pertinent question. What do you reckon the number of cabinet resignations if he wins tonight in light of impending fall of Johnson government down the line? So obviously he has won um, by a very tight margin, 211 to 148. In terms of what could happen immediately next, I assume Boris Johnson is going to want to be calming the ship, sort of say this is drawing a line under this. We can now continue with the issues that the people care about. Things which could lead to another crunch point would be some significant cabinet resignations. Aaron, I want to know from you, do you, do you think we're in store this week for some big guns 
resigning? Do you think the the rats will flee the sinking ship? I think they'll wait until these by-elections in Somerset and Wakefield. There's no rush now. Look, it's June. I don't think people will be saying he needs to go in July, August. I think they'll now be keeping their powder dry and, and preparing for some sort of transition afterwards. Hard to say though, Michael, this is really uncharted territory. I mean, cast your mind back to 1001, December the 12th, 2019. This was a stonking majority. The Tories hadn't really seen a majority like this since 1987. You know, yes, they won a small majority with Cameron in, in, uh, in 2015 and with Major in 92, but they hadn't seen a majority like this since 1987. That's a really long time. And they have destroyed it and wasted it and floundered upon it within two and a half years. I don't think anybody could have predicted that. It's extraordinary. There is no precedent, I think, for wasting this much political capital this quickly. Blair did something similar with Iraq, but look, it took five, six years and they won two general elections and they changed a lot of things. You know, we, we got devolution, we got national minimum wage and so on. What's Johnson done? It's extraordinary. The things he has done, are like he's always saying, oh, he dealt with the pandemic really well. He dealt with that. He didn't deal with the pandemic mm. well. Yes, Britain came up with a vaccine fairly early on. That was a real achievement. Doesn't seem like that was much to do with Boris Johnson. It was partly to do with, you know, the successful universities we, we have. Maybe they made some good investment decisions. I'm not necessarily going to say that's, that's not plausible that that happened. But we also did have the worst handling of the first year of the pandemic in any of the large countries. You know, we had tens of thousands of unnecessary deaths. And that was, you know, the vaccine, it's very hard to say who was personally responsible for that. It, it seemed like it was a bit of a collective effort. When it came to us going into those lockdowns, like when it came to, you know, the government buying into these silly herd immunity ideas, he was personally responsible. So the, per the calls that he made as an individual have been terrible. And you've got these cabinet members and these sort of, you know, Ask looking backbenchers saying, oh, on the big judgments, he, he called it right. He didn't. It's just a, a completely bizarre rewriting of history. And as, as you say, he's got nothing really, no legacy here. Ash, what do you think could happen next? I just wanted to jump in to disagree with Aaron, actually. Uh, Aaron, you said that two years ago, nobody could have seen this coming. I actually think that this is quite predictable if you go back and you look through Boris Johnson's career, because sometimes I do think there's a danger of overemphasizing individual personality mm -hmm. and character when you're trying to understand politics. But I think with Boris Johnson, it's something that's very important. He is somebody who has excelled himself through laziness, lack of regard for other people, lack of regard for his obligations. And he's done that with every job he's ever had. When he was a journalist at the Times, he was sacked for making up quotes. He goes on to become editor of The Spectator, where he's absolutely known to be carrying on multiple affairs, where there are allegations of him having groped other journalists, squeezing thighs under the table, becomes a politician, he becomes mayor of London, wastes a load of money on garden bridge projects. Meanwhile, his alleged mistress, Jennifer Arcuri, is being given taxpayer-funded grants, places on trips with foreign dignitaries alongside Boris Johnson himself. He goes back to being an MP. And then what happens? He becomes foreign secretary because Theresa May needs to balance out the distribution of power within her own party. He fucks up the negotiation of Nazanin Radcliffe-Zagari's release, 
he resigns over Brexit because that's something which is better for him. And he's able to contest a general election because of the political conditions of the time and the ability of his vote leave advisors to be able to read and exploit them. Then you take that away. And what has he immolated his political career over? It's an inability to say no to the faintest hint of pleasure. That's all it is. It is a total lack of self-discipline, a total lack of emotional continence, really. Uh, He's done himself in over inopportune birthday cake and ABBA parties. And before that, it was about wanting to have posh wallpaper on the cheap. He's somebody who, in terms of temperament, is totally unfitting to hold high office. And that is looking at this through, in some ways, the least traditionally left-wing lens possible. It is screamingly obvious that Boris Johnson was going to squander the opportunities offered by an 80-seat majority, because quite frankly, this is a man who is only prime minister because he doesn't have the hip mobility to suck himself off. (laughs) Amazing. I disagree, by the way. Okay, go on. Come back. (laughs) He, he was the mayor of London twice, and there was nothing like this. I mean, people thought he would fail, but not like this. Not like this. And I think a big variable is the media turned on him in a way that the media has never turned on him before. But I, I think that, no, I, but there is no precedent in British political history. Part of me agrees with Ash in so much as he's done everything his own way, and now he's collapsing in his own way, right? Boris Johnson was a very unique politician, and how he rose to the top was incredibly unique, and now how he's failing is incredibly unique. So part of me agrees with you, Ash, but an 80-seat majority is is not that common in in the history of British politics. Thatcher does it 80-seat or plus. Thatcher does it a couple of times. Blair does it a couple of times. There is genuinely nothing like this in, in, in recent political history in Britain. And I think, you know, most people thought he would do a term or two. He'd probably have to exit under some corruption scandal. He'd probably shag somebody in office and and cheat on Carrie or whatever. I I don't think people predicted something like this. Partly, I think that's also because of COVID. I think the COVID crisis made politics that bit more serious. You know, when you've got 100,000 plus deaths and people can't attend funerals, well, the, you know, the, the joshing and the banter and the jolly ersatz, phony Winston Churchill routine doesn't work anymore. So on the one hand, yeah, okay, I'm inclined to agree with Ash a little bit, but I think that that doesn't give credit to how unique this situation now is. For our audience, again, like I say, there is really no precedent in contemporary British politics for somebody to squander this, this big a majority this quickly. I do think that COVID point is, is essential because one of the bets, one of the gambles that Boris Johnson made throughout his career, and I think Dominic Cummings was involved here as well, was that people don't actually really care that much about the rules. So, you know, when they prorogued Parliament because they wanted to do Brexit. You know, people didn't care that much. The whole wallpaper thing where he got someone to do some expensive wallpaper in the Downing Street flat, no one cares anymore. Most rules, people don't, people are happy to overlook when you break them because most people feel like, well, to be honest, if he shares some of my policy ambitions, if he makes me feel good about myself, which was what Boris Johnson was always quite good at doing, sort of reflecting back at people a positive image of themselves, you know, if you have these reactionary tendencies, that's fine. Even when it was in London, London is a positive player. Da, 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 da. He could project an image that people quite liked, even though they knew that he wasn't someone who was a stickler for the rules and he would occasionally break them. And one of the reasons he was able to get ahead of other politicians is because they thought the rules mattered more than they did. So when it came to proroguing parliament, 
the Labour Party, I don't think Jeremy Corbyn led this fight, but they were sort of really going on this line of Boris Johnson broke the rules, he prorogued Parliament, that's not a constitutional thing to do. No one cared, no one gave a shit. But then the pandemic came around, which was a unique situation where actually people really started to care about the rules because we had been told by the government that these rules are saving lives. And also we were following them to the T, right? So the fact that Boris Johnson went into that situation and didn't realize that his old adage that sort of, you know, you can break rules and get away with it. People have priorities over and above that suddenly became untrue. And that is and will be the downfall of, of Boris Johnson. So I, I, I'm on the side of it is quite remarkable because without this completely extraordinary event, I think Boris Johnson would probably be in line for a, a, another term. And it's also notable that when it comes to the pandemic, it is remarkable that he, his decisions let tens of thousands of people die who didn't need to die. He would have got away with that if he hadn't broken the rules. We should wrap up in a moment. I just want final thoughts from both of you. Um, the significance of this evening, sorry, what should people look out for over the rest of the week? I'll go to Ash first. So just first thing, I'm not saying that it's not remarkable. I'm just saying that it was predictable because the stakes of being prime minister are different. And this character trait of Boris Johnson's has been obvious from the start. So not saying not remarkable, just saying ultimately predictable. In terms of what people need to be looking out for, of course, the really big ones are ministerial resignations. Now, I agree with Aaron. I don't think those are going to be coming before the Tiverton and Wakefield by-elections, because also you're not going to see those ministerial resignations until people work out whether or not they want to launch a candidacy or whose candidacy they would like to support in return for you know, a cushy job like Chancellor of the Exchequer or Foreign Secretary or something like that. So there needs to be some backroom horse trading before I think you see any more political movements. The interesting thing will be to see what Boris Johnson tries to do to uh, either distract the public with some you know, spending promises, pressures Rishi Sunak into opening up his purse, or indeed whether there's an attempt to sort of foist a new crisis on the British public so that we're distracted. I don't think either of those things would necessarily work, but I think that those are moves short of calling a snap election that Boris Johnson has available to him. And then I think the third thing is waiting on the result from the Durham police in terms of the investigation of Keir Starmer. Because ultimately, if Keir Starmer gets fined, then you open up a resignation crisis on the Labour benches. And that is maybe one thing that could finally put Partygate to rest for Boris Johnson, perhaps. The banter timeline is Nadine Doris as Foreign Secretary and Michael Fabricant as Chancellor of the Exchequer by the end of the week, if there's some resignations and some promotions. Um, Aaron, I want your final thoughts for the evening. Yeah, I think Ash is right. I think the only way that Johnson comes out of this is if they can concoct an even bigger, more mediatized, more deranged and crazed crisis than what we're seeing right now. I think that's close to impossible, but I think Keir Starmer's given them a glimpse of hope with his promise to resign if there's a certain sequence of events played out in, in Durham. You have to bear in mind, this is a really, really extraordinary situation, again, to impress this on our viewers' minds. The fate of British politics now, to some extent now, depends on the views of several provincial detectives in the northeast of England. You know, we talk about contingency in, 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 in politics, events, as it was once put, uh, determining how things unwind, and, and that's a classic example of it. I think also what Ash said in regard to 
the management internally is is so true. Look, if there are two or three ambitious people, and politics is full of ambitious people, there are two or three ambitious people who now want to launch a leadership bid tomorrow, this week. Again, that will determine the temporality of all of this. My view is I, I think things will be relatively slow for the next couple of weeks until those two by-elections. And people are going to jockey in position over the course of the summer. Because on the one hand, you've got the temporality of the uh, the Twitter feed and the, the mediatized live TV, you know, Beth Rigby and the BBC political editor, Chris Mason, them getting panicking. You have to watch this. This matters. Here's why. That's true. But also political processes like getting rid of a leader, getting a new one. Those take weeks and months, not hours and days. So I would say nothing too dramatic until the end of the month. Although uh, pretty famous last words, you know, this time tomorrow Boris Johnson resigns or something. But I think that's unlikely. I think we might have cabinet resignations this week, which is why you must subscribe to NavarroMedia.com because we will be talking about them for the rest of this week with updates and analysis for now. Thank you, Aaron and Ash, for joining me tonight. Um, It's been very enjoyable. Thank you all for joining our extended show tonight. We'll be back on Wednesday from 7pm. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.